Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, if you have been listening to our podcast for a long time, you have probably listened to a lot of interviews on economic policy or political science or tech and entrepreneurship. Uh, one thing that we haven't really touched on, but something very close to my heart is art, the art world, art history, anything that is related to art. Uh, some of you may not know, I actually applied to Princeton University as an art history major. Uh, I went to over 280 art museums when I was in high school. Art history is something I love so much, but the art world is suffering today because of the coronavirus pandemic. Museums and galleries have been closed since March and even earlier under strict lockdown rules across the globe. Uh, there are growing fears among curators and directors and art lovers about the long-term impact of this public health crisis. The museum world might not be able to stay afloat during this. Uh, I'm very honored today to be joined by Princeton University Art Museum's own director, James Stewart, for the following discussion on um, both the coronavirus impact on the museum world and also how museums may be able to position itself in the public discourse and public sphere going forward. Uh, director Stewart joined Princeton Art Museum as the director in 2009, and now he directs a staff of 110 people uh, with an operating budget of over $20 million and a collection of over 110,000 works of art that span the globe and encompass 5,000 years of world history. It is truly one of the most uh, well-managed and one of the most uh, amazing museums out there in the world today. So thank you so much for joining me remotely today, Director Stewart. I'm delighted to have a chance to chat a little bit. Uh, so, so why don't we just uh, jump right in? It seems that uh, the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis on, on the museum world was tremendous. And you actually recently hosted a webinar titled The Museum Citizenship in the Post-Coronavirus Age, where you discussed the role of our museums in helping making us uh, better citizens, and you also offered your thoughts about ways in which uh, the responsibility of the Princeton University Arts Museum may evolve and even expand uh, in the wake of the coronavirus epidemic. So would you mind just telling us a little bit about what you talked about? So I have long had a view that museums need to be part of the process of helping all of us become better citizens in the, in the society we live in. And I think there are a variety of ways in which we can do that. Um, museums like ours uh, are globe spanning. They can invite us to be to understand ourselves uh, as citizens of a wider set of communities rather than thinking of ourselves in a more parochial sense. They can open windows into difference. Um, maybe most fundamentally, museums can awaken empathy, our ability to feel compassion for people whose life experiences uh, might be very different from our own and whom we don't even know, something that I think is in rather short supply in the, in the present world. Um, all of that feels to me uh, to both be true of museums generally, but perhaps heightened in the present moment, not only because of COVID, but because of some of the swirling social issues at large in, in our society. And so I think in a sense, it, it this moment should be a provocation for museum professionals to think again about how to assure that we are doing the work that our communities need. Um, are there ways in which we can be gathering places even virtually um, for people who don't necessarily um, share the same views? Are there responsibilities that arise? And inevitably, I think there are 
for museums like Princeton's that will certainly weather the current storm in a context in which many cultural institutions, including many museums, will not. Um, I think one of the important issues, therefore, is that if there is a diminishment in capacity in the, in the cultural sector, um, if a number of museums fail or at the very least have to retrench in their abilities to serve their publics, what does that require for those of us who can continue? Um, and I think it, it may mean many things. I think in, it means <clears throat> perhaps taking on a responsibility to um, public engagement um, in arenas that we have not always done. Um, I hope, for example, there may be some important opportunities here to bring together the brain trust of Princeton, including its students, with the needs of the communities around us, including in the arena of K-12 education. Um, uh, those are things we've long worked in, but the context that exists around us is obviously shifting very dramatically at this moment. And if we feel, as I certainly do, that arts and culture should be part of the experience of young people being educated today, then maybe we need to take on um, some different responsibilities to assure that that need continues to be met. So what are some of the initiatives that uh, Princeton University Art Museum is currently doing? Are, are things virtual now? Before I left on campus, I, I remember uh, there were museum staffs going around taking videos yeah. and pictures of the galleries. To... <laughs> so the good news, bad news was, you know, we had about two weeks notice that we were going to have to close. So we sent our camera people out in force into the galleries to develop a lot of digital content really quickly. Um, I will say that we had a certain advantage in that we've been planning for some while now to have to close the museum next year for the construction of a new museum facility. And that meant we were already thinking about how to go virtual, right? What was that going to mean? How do we, how might we develop um, digital curricula that could be used in university classrooms, in K-12 settings? How do we provide digital access to the collections? We began the process of digitizing the collections in depth some years ago now, again, in anticipation that digital access was going to be important. But obviously, when March came, we had to pivot really quickly. And so one of the things we did was we, we immediately developed new kind of layers of programming that were intended to be delivered um, through digital tools. Um, one of the signatures of the museum for a number of years now has been what we call late Thursdays where we keep the galleries open late and do a lot of, of programming. Um, obviously now we're not doing that in the galleries, but we very quickly turned to developing late Thursdays virtually with live lectures every week, um, live art making classes that follow those typically on kind of thematized lines. Um, programming that we pre-develop, pre-record, and then edit and shape and deliver so that it's downloadable via our website, for example. So it's really a host of issues. One of the critical pieces was, again, pivoting over the period of Princeton's spring break to be ready to support faculty teaching when it moved into a purely virtual forum as well. Um, given that in a typical academic year, we now have courses using the museum collections in about 50 departments and programs of the campus. 
it meant that again the 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 turn to supporting that kind of faculty teaching wasn't just for art historians it might have been for biologists or environmental studies faculty or again uh, people coming to engage with works of art and how they make meaning from a variety of disciplinary perspectives and you know it certainly kept everybody really busy the last few months now obviously as we look forward to the fall and we're not yet clear whether we're going to be doing virtual instruction or in-person instruction or some blend of the two we're really using the summer to develop more and more of this kind of digital content so we can go wherever we need to uh, going to your point about uh, digital learning and supporting faculties i uh, took uh, Professor Reichel and Professor Bussard's uh, photojournalism class two springs ago when I was a freshman, and I know they've been really expecting this to use this spring to uh, <laughs> teach in the context of the newly opened show uh, yeah. of the Life magazine and, and and such. So uh, totally such a loss of wonderful opportunity. But will the learning and viewing experience ever be the same in a virtual format? I know you would say no, but well, you, you know, I mean, the, the, the short answer is no, it won't be the same. But I will say what we I think have really had to think about a lot is what can the virtual experience do best? And there are things um, if you think about the capacity that super high resolution images give us to go very close to an object or even to investigate the object from a technical point of view in a way that you would never be able to necessarily do if you're standing, you know, distanced from a from a great painting by a stanchion in a gallery. You know, I joke sometimes about the, the Mona Lisa at the Louvre as being the sort of paragon of this. In person, you can't get within about 30 feet of the Mona Lisa virtually you can get very close to even see the granular character of the brush stroke. So there are some sort of offsetting positives, but ultimately I think what's lost is any kind of sense of the thing itself, the, the, the thing that was touched by the hand of the maker that shows the patina of age in many cases. Um, those are among the reasons that I feel that at the end of this, this current situation, um, there will be an appetite for people to return to the social spaces of museums and rediscover the things um, themselves once again. That just made me think, uh, without a shared physical space where you can physically stand there to view art, would it be impossible to make art present in one's life because for me it's very hard for me to even admit sometimes but without having the chance to go to art museum it's very hard for me to pick up art uh, in life i suppose if you mean again the thing itself i think that's that's right you know for for i, I mean i'm always a champion um that people should should imagine that everyone can be a collector it doesn't mean we all collect priceless objects but I think living with intentionally chosen things, you know, um, in a certain sense, we all, of course, curate the lives around us, even if we don't, you know, use that verb to describe what we do. Um, often we surround ourselves with things that have personal meaning. Um, I do think, therefore, it's possible to sort of live a visually rich life, even when museum going is something that is denied us. Um, 
Uh, I also, again, think that the, the, the digital opportunities um, are, are really interesting. One of the, you know, really fascinating things about the way we've deployed this programming is that we've had participants who joined us from all over the world who wouldn't necessarily be able to do so in situ. Um, you know, if we're having a live lecture in McCosh Hall, we might be limited by the seating capacity of the building or the people who have elected to choose to travel to Princeton to have the experience. Virtually, we have people participating from Israel, from Texas, from California. You know, in that sense, the world becomes one's oyster if you are traveling virtually. Um, I've participated in both live and, and pre-programmed museum programming from museums in the Northeast, in, in the UK, in California, um, because I suppose I, my own appetite is undiminished and needs to be fulfilled in other ways. Um, and, you know, in this sense, of course, we at Princeton are by no means alone in having, having toggled over so quickly to trying to create digital programming that actually works on its own terms. Uh, what you just said about uh, allowing people to actually more people to join in virtual formats remind me of, uh, uh, about this article uh, I read on Washington Post. Uh, it said that since the cultural wars uh, of the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, the arts have largely rebranded themselves as an essential public good. Uh, art leaders mm -hmm. stress things like connection and engagement, promoting a collective experience. But the article goes on and talks about how this somewhat overemphasis on collective viewing ruins the power of private contemplation uh, and solitary <laughs> engagement. So just to play devil's advocate here, do you think COVID-19 offers a unique experience in the sense that we could possibly create an even better way for people to experience art on their own or reflect on art uh, in their own rooms uh, in this solitary fashion? Well, you know, I mean, you're, you're touching on something that is a fundamental tension of museums in our time, right? That if you go back not very many decades, museum going was understood to be a sort of privileged activity, um, an activity uh, that could be tainted with elitism. Um, and really, as you note, around the, the time of the culture wars, museums began to reinvent themselves as being about the, the meeting point of fantastic art of excellence understood in a certain set of ways and equity understood in another sort of ways of access of opening museums out. The, the balancing act, I think, is even in, in, in a physical space to try to provide both of these things. And, you know, I think in many museums, this remains under normal circumstances possible. The exceptions might be the Museum of Modern Art, for example, whose galleries wouldn't under normal circumstances be so crowded that having a private in, uh, relationship with a work of art becomes all but impossible. At Princeton, that's generally not true. You may need to choose the hour of the day, the hour of the week when you come to the galleries if what you're seeking is a kind of uninterrupted dialogue with a work of art. But I also think that the social aspect of museum space is critically important. And I'll give you one little example. A year or so ago, we mounted an exhibition called Nature's Nation, which was around the relationship of American art and environmentalism from the dawn of, of, of American society in the 18th century to the present moment. 
And there were so many, I think, challenging and provocative objects on view that surprised people to see these objects brought together in this particular narrative that I regularly saw strangers reaching out to each other and engaging because they needed to process their experience in live time with others. And if they hadn't come with someone else, it was a kind of fascinating, if somewhat unintended social experiment to see that actually happening, that, that, that impulse to kind of get outside oneself and to therefore be able to move back and forth between that internal monologue maybe we have and then a dialogue. Is all of this possible and, and something that can be, can be reinforced virtually? I absolutely think so. Um, you know, when, when people talk about a return to normalcy, I kind of say, you know, why do we assume that going back to past practice is the desirable thing? It would seem to me that that would deny what we are learning right now about um, various learning modalities, different pedagogies that can be successful um, virtually, including again, the ability to open some of this out into a kind of a global um, discourse um, that itself has, fewer barriers to participation, but not, it is certainly not barrier free. Back to one of your earlier questions, I think one of the challenges for many of us who think about these things is to recognize that not every individual or every family has the same access to technology that you and I, Tiger, might have. How do we therefore argue that a virtual platform is barrier free? It's not. There are many people who still struggle with access to technology, with access to high-speed broadband, you know, for whom therefore these barriers to participation continue to exist. And I think to really grapple with those riddles, arts organizations um, are going to have to partner with social service organizations and other partners that might not have been our traditional partners of the past in order to really try to overcome some of those, those still unresolved barriers. That was, that was beautifully said, Director Stewart, and I feel like my questions are always somewhat a step behind you because you already juxtaposed this, this tension so well. Uh, Na Nature's Nation, was, which is one of the most fascinating exhibitions I, I've been to at, at Princeton, curated by Carl Cusero, it was just a wonderful experience that it literally, it viscerally made me uh, realize the, the importance of climate change debates and environmental issues. So, so as you said, uh, museums can be this shared physical space uh, that uh, perform this effects of anti-alienation, symbolize this reunification of a social sphere uh, that is actually right now so fragmented by class division and other societies. And I think, issues. if I may interrupt you, that that's one of the most important things that museums can do, not just you know suddenly in recent weeks, but, but over many years now, and that is to forge connections with the lived experience of our citizens um, in order to find connections into the very issues that you perhaps are thinking about, but by maybe repositioning them through the lens of, of the visual arts to both carve out a kind of safe space in which sometimes these very problematic questions can be explored in a way that is on the one hand, not neutral. I am not somebody who pretends that museums are neutral spaces. We are not. Every time 
we make a curatorial decision, we are denying that very kind of concept of neutrality. But I, in, in, in that sense, I would say museums are by definition political spaces, but they don't need to be partisan spaces. I think these museums ought to be spaces, as I said earlier, in which people who don't necessarily already agree with one another can come together in a kind of a triangulated way in which the, the work of art is the other point on the triangle and, and therefore have the possibility of more productive dialogue than we might have in some other obviously very commonly oppositional contexts. Absolutely. I mean, your words also reminded me of uh, this course I took just this past spring, uh, Philosophy of Contemporary Art. It was a German class taught by this visiting professor from Germany, Professor Juliana Hibentisch, and also uh, Professor Tom Levin from mm. uh, the German department also came in to talk about some of the readings with us. And uh, one thing that Professor Levin taught us to be careful about that this one author that we spent a lot of time on, who is uh, Nicolas Bourriad, who wrote this fantastic essay about uh, relational aesthetics. And he was kind of uh, talking about a lot of the points that we discussed, such as the museums, the physical space, how it performs this utopian vision of bringing mm -hmm. people together. But Professor Levin also told us to be careful of the message because as you rightly put, uh, you know, it is a political space. It is not just a neutral uh, utopian environment. So what are some of the major takeaways from this COVID-19 crisis that you think are still some of the obstacles uh, that we see? What, what can museums further do to get us to that utopian vision? Well, uh... Or, or it's well, not, maybe it's not necessary. I mean, I'm not even there. sure that I would say that ought to be our <laughs> our goal. Um, you know, that that's a really complicated sessions. Actually, you know, it puts me in mind of the the obvious fact that you know museums in the West are are still in many ways a, a construct of the of the European Enlightenment, which itself is therefore you know deeply embedded in colonialist uh, enterprises. And, and certainly for museums like ours that have globe-spanning collections, um, the origins of those collections are often interwoven with the complexities of colonialism and its aftermath. Um, I think one of the things that COVID reminds me of, even in the pathway of the disease, it is that of course the disease itself has been inequitable in terms of striking different communities and peoples unevenly and has been a rather vivid reminder as if we needed it about the fundamental inequities in society to overlay this of course with the the resurgence of our our focus on issues of equity diversity inclusion access um, and to maybe overlay that with issues of social justice, I think for many museums, it ought to be the occasion to again reconsider um, the kinds of projects we mount. Um, uh, at Princeton, you know, we have a history now of launching exhibitions that try to find um, traction in the contemporary world, right? That, that connect with, as I put it earlier, our lived experience in addition to, to grappling with environmentalism through the history of art, we mounted an exhibition a couple of years ago that focused on the history of migration as it was visible through works of art made by um, Mexican uh, immigrants to the United States early in the 20th century. 
such a topic is again inherently I think political but need not necessarily position itself as part of a partisan discourse. Um, for me though, I think there is work to be done in our institution and in others to, to assure that museums can be both places of comfort and places of, I'll put it this way, provocation. Um, sometimes I think we have to be quietly provocative because I think one of the fundamental issues here is that museums need to hold on to the public trust. Um, we need to be seen as reliable, <laughs> as um, places that put forward trustworthy information, which of course is such a fraught concept in recent times as well. Museums have generally speaking withstood the assault on authority better than a lot of other institutions. And I think it's critical if we're going to survive into future decades that that remain the case. And it's a reason why I think this, this kind of delicate balance between on the one hand being engaged in the world around us and therefore by definition being political and avoiding things that are, are perhaps um, tainted by partisan politics is so critical if we're going to um, continue to retain the, the public confidence in the work we do. What about the debate about uh, whether museums should or could be reactionary uh, to some of the current mo the current issues and, and uh, you know for example the COVID-19 crisis or very recently the Black Lives Matter yeah. movement there's been a number of museums across the country that started collecting artworks and and soliciting people's face masks and prints and objects that capture the collective struggle of this nation battling against coronavirus uh, so at, at, at the risk of saying you know something dangerous you know um any museum that wasn't already doing some of those things prior to recent weeks, um, I, I don't know what reality they were they were paying attention to. Um, it is absolutely true that you know museums are to some degree. I don't mean to say every museum, but writ large, perhaps are by definition somewhat conservative. Um, by which I really mean slow to change, not least because of the history that informs many of these institutions. But we have a responsibility to evolve as society around us does. And even in, if we're prescient in, in certain moments, perhaps to anticipate issues that are going to be important um, in the fullness of time, it would be, to my mind, utterly irresponsible for a museum at this moment in the 21st century not to be paying incredibly close attention to issues of social justice and equity in representation. Um, museums that only decided three weeks ago that they suddenly need to invite, for example, artists of color to be part of their program are really coming very late to the table, you know. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So um, I'm maybe not very forgiving on that subject. Having said that, all of us can double down on these questions. Um, you know, it is something that I think we who are trained in the academy don't do so well, and that is deciding that it's okay to share our voice with others, to invite other forms of expertise to the table, you know, to recognize that there are forms of learned expertise that go beyond the credentialing PhD programs of the academy, which I obviously value and am myself a product of, 
but to therefore share our voice by inviting more people to bring their kind of learned experience to the table. I think there are a lot of ways in which this is going to be really critical. I'll give you one example. I'm sure you know that in the prehistory, so to speak, of Princeton University, the university is now built on what were originally tribal lands um, uh, that belonged to native populations. That history has been relatively invisible um, on our campus, in our galleries. Um, I feel strongly that it's both an, a responsibility and a really compelling creative opportunity to engage in a new series of dialogues with native peoples whose historical roots were in this geographic uh, location. And that this could take a variety of forms, including inviting native experts to add their voices to ours in interpreting the objects in our galleries or to commissioning work that might specifically respond to the history of the land, um, including the history of the relocation of peoples. So it's certainly a, a, you know, again, a really rich vein that I would say we have only just begun to mine in potentially fruitful ways. I mean, the world has become so dynamic and, and volatile in some ways. And uh, I suppose all of this goes beyond uh, your traditional PhD art history education. So you have to really think about ways to. Well, yeah. one of the things, you know, um, I suppose if I had wanted to, um, I don't know, continue to operate in a somewhat narrower scope, I probably would have remained a curator. But becoming a museum director, in a way, one has to cast a very wide net, especially in, in, in providing some degree of leadership for an institution as globe spanning as ours, by which I mean the art museum specifically, but obviously with regard to the university's mission as well. Um, ours are among the most globe spanning, therefore diverse collections on any college campus in North America. And I think that's both a fascinating reality and a complex responsibility including around the questions of our moral uh, obligations and having taken on the stewardship of those collections. Um, you know, it is, it, it in, in a certain sense for me as a professional, it's, it causes me to have to think about many more things that I ever thought about as a graduate student in an art history program, um, uh, including, you know, everything from the impact of good design on shaping a positive museum going experience of using good design to overcome some of these resistances, um, of using good design to create a sense that we care for all of the collections um, uh, for which we have responsibility with some uh, equity. Um, you may know or have observed that in the current museum building, there's a very unfortunate, <clears throat> what I will call upstairs downstairs problem. <laughs> um, uh, the upper level galleries are typically devoted to European and North American cultures, and the lower level galleries are devoted to non-Western cultures, the ancient world, uh, and so forth. And without intending it, certainly we don't in the current moment, that could convey a, a sense of hierarchy, of value, 
um, and uh, overcome or block the, the desire to kind of understand these collections more synthetically to identify and engage with how culture and um, uh, ideas spread through the world, points of contact, trade, exchange, po unequal power relationships historically. All of these, again, are therefore things that we're certainly trying to grapple with in making a new museum building. And I actually think that in that sense, um, one of the silver linings of COVID is it is provoking us right now to think very deeply about a lot of these questions while we're in the process of designing a new museum. So we have the opportunity to manifest some of our, some, some fresh thinking, I think, in, in a building that will then hopefully grace the Princeton campus for at least 100 years. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about the new museum plan? So based on our conversation right now, it really surprised me because it seems that COVID-19's impact is less about, oh, like, how are we going to complete the project in time, but more about how do we use this opportunity yeah. uh, to bring upon new missions? I mean, it is both of those things, right? There are, <laughs> there are pragmatic, you know, questions that have to be answered, including how we're going to reopen the museum as it is today. Um, following the appropriate safety protocols and what that will mean in terms of limiting attendance and mandating social distancing and, and all the rest. But again, because at Princeton, I think we have, we're in a just very unusual and, and certainly very privileged situation in being able to conceptualize a spatially new museum while we're undergoing all these new influences and new kind of sources of information and, and provocation. Um, so we're on the one hand thinking about how do we design a museum building that offers flexibility beyond what we ever might imagine needing. So that a generation from now, whatever the, the societal impulses are, the museum can adapt itself to, to continue to best serve those purposes very pragmatically, one of the things that the new design will achieve is really a kind of leveling out of cultural engagement so that our focus on the arts of Asia, of Europe, of Africa, um, are assume a kind of parity um, in a way that more clearly messages, I think, our values at this point in history. Um, that's unusual. If you, you know, very few large collection institutions have put most of their galleries on a single floor level because there are spatial constraints that make that very difficult. We're pushing that envelope as far as we can um, because I think there are just so many, frankly, pedagogical benefits in trying to do that. So going forward, I suppose there must be somewhat of a inequity even amongst the museums and gallery world itself in the sense that the very top institutions uh, can embark on those new projects and um, survive and sustain quite well in this crisis whereas most amount of nonprofits uh, have to struggle so and you kind of brought it up at, at the very beginning of the interview that Prince University and institutions that are privileged and lucky enough to survive this crisis should have a duty to uh, embark on more social responsibilities and engage more in the public sphere. So uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more uh, about what well, there are, you know, there are huge, I think, threats facing the cultural sector. There are estimates that as many as a third of the museums in North America will never reopen 
or will fail as a result of COVID in the current uh, financial crisis. Um, what that speaks to, I think, is an underpinning of your question, and it's the reality that the average museum in the United States is a very small enterprise. It might be a community-based enterprise. It might be um, a, a, a museum with a staff that can be counted on a single hand. Um, typically, therefore, those are institutions with very small endowments the invested monies that help to assure a steady income and also even things out from the good moments to the to the bad moments. Um, given again that landscape, you're quite right. Um, resources are absolutely distributed um, uh, inequitably across institutions. And it is a reason why I feel that those of us who have the capacity or will almost certainly emerge from this still having the capacity in financial resources, in staffing, in physical plant, are going to need to, in, you know, in a very mission-driven way, consider how we might step into the breach. You know, if a museum elsewhere in our state, for example, were to fail because of COVID, what would become of its collections? How do we help assure that those collections continue to exist in the public trust. Um, that is a hypothetical, um, but it is, a, I, I think, a, a, a likely reality of what lies ahead. Um, so it might be, you know, the question that museums that, again, do have capacity step in to help take on the responsibility for caring for collections. Um, for providing public educational opportunities that otherwise might not be available. You know, it seems inevitable that at this point, these stresses are not only being felt by cultural institutions, but by all institutions. Education is going to experience some very significant strains in this country because of the stresses on local, state, federal budgets. Um, you know, very often what seems to have happened in time is that that every time there is some kind of a financial downturn, the arts in public education suffer almost immediately. Um, that's been true for 40 years now. Um, and to some degree, museums have come to be for a long time essential partners to their local public school districts to help assure a level of arts education for young people. Um, we've had a partnership program with the um, public school district in the city of Trenton for, I think, going on 40 years now. I think one of our responses in the current may moment may well be that we need to grow that program in order to help assure that there is a suite of opportunities available for students in the Trenton public school district at a variety of ages, for example. Um, to my mind, the, the kind of questions I'm, or, or proposals in a sense, op opportunities I'm positing are very much aligned with Princeton's long dedication to service. If we think about our informal motto of being in the nation's service and in the service of, of all people, um, I think these are really critical questions we have to ask ourselves right now and come up with some short-term answers and some longer-term uh, responses. 
before I let you go, I think there is one poignant debate uh, in the museum world, perhaps from coming from an outsider's perspective, uh, which is that should the museums be allowed to sell pieces from their collection in order to pay for operating expenses and to stay afloat. And I, th I think the Association of Art Museum Directors just decided at the beginning of June that they should, that finally you can't do that for the next two years if, you, if, if you're hit really hard by the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, you mentioned that fellow institutions like yeah. Princeton Art Museum should have a duty to step in. Should the government step in? Should there be bailouts for institutions so that we, they, they, don't, yeah. they don't have to sell artworks? Well, there, there are, of course, bailouts, if we want to call them that, albeit to date probably inadequate to really save a lot of institutions from what I'll just call an existential crisis. The specific issue you're raising around how we understand the importance of collections is, is a, again, a, a really critical one. Ordinarily, the museum industry um, uh, sanctions uh, penalizes those institutions that regard their collections as being kind of semi-liquid assets, right? There's a history of museums in trouble looking to their collections to raise liquidity, right? By selling something in the into the marketplace. Obviously doing so works against the fundamental enterprise of museums, which is typically for those of us that collect, to care for the past and present in the manifestation of these, these objects. Um, on the one hand, I, I mean, I guess I would say my response to the, to, the, to the waiver of that penalty in the present moment is a recognition that these really are exceptional circumstances, right? This is, as we all know, a combination of 1918, the Great Depression, um, you know, a, a kind of pulling together of some of the most um, intense stress points on society that we've seen over over hundreds of years. And so is it a moment where perhaps exceptional measures should be on the table? I think probably so in order to stave off some of the most dire consequences. Um, any museum that undertakes, you know, liquidating its collections in a in a casual way, I think ought still to be the subject of real approbation, right? Because again, as I've been trying to emphasize, I think we we have a responsibility to maintain the public trust. And if we remove that custodial, that stewardship role, then then I think we're we're putting ourselves in an inherently kind of fragile position. My hope therefore would be that in the end, very few museums will exercise that now, uh, uh, that allowable opportunity, because I think there are also other steps that can be taken. I don't recommend it, but for museums in distress, I think it becomes possible to enter into a discussion with one's donors, with the, perhaps with the court system to consider whether um, one might use one's endowment more liberally in a short period of time as opposed to selling off assets that once gone will never return. Um, I suppose this is a long-winded way of saying I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to this problem because museums are so disparately resourced um, and, and therefore very disparately positioned to survive the challenges of these coming years. 
Absolutely, and I think uh, I suppose in throughout history there has been instances where empires, when they're on the verge of collapse, they would sell their statues or something. I was I was talking to my friend Will that uh, yesterday, who is an artist, and he was joking with me. He said, "Well, I suppose if the Italian government can't survive the COVID nineteen crisis, they could just sell Mona Lisa." And I was like, "Mona Lisa is not in Italy. It's exactly." It's, 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 uh, <laughs> so you know, also, it yeah. is true that that human history. Um, has seen the movements of prized objects, right? As, as fortunes rise and fall. And that continues to be the case. You know, in the last 20 years, China has become an, an aggressively collecting nation, government with lots of museums, public and private nestled within it, in a way that it was not in the previous decades when it was actually an exporting nation, right? Objects were leaving China to be acquired by collectors elsewhere in the world, including museums. And so this kind of flow of collections is itself something that you can map in a pretty fascinating way across both geography and time. And I'm sure it will ever be thus. Um, you know, what I would say is clear right now is that we're living in an unusually fluid moment <laughs> um, where many things feel kind of up for grabs. And to go back to the very beginning, I think, again, it's a part of a museum's responsibility to be actively engaged in that discourse, not to be clinging, you know, in some almost with some religious fervor to past professional practices that may not necessarily be wholly relevant in the present moment and yet somehow clinging to the core of our identity, responsibility, ethics, and so forth um, to be the repositories of some of the highest aspirations of the peoples of the past and the present. I know the museum world is often seen as uh, somewhat detached from government actions, but since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I'd do have to ask you at the end, what would be the punchline here, either for policy or not for policy? Does policy have a role in this current crisis to help the art world at all? In the abstract, I think it absolutely ought to. You know, at the policy level in the United States, this has always been a weakness. Um, if we think about the different ways in which nations kind of engage with the cultural enterprise. If you look even in, in recent months, weeks, the discrepancies with which, let's say, Germany has um, attempted to, to kind of grapple with this crisis among or with its cultural institutions versus, you know, the bailout here, I think at a policy level, we are, we are poorly served in the United States. And it's a, a it, it has always seemed to me that, again, it's a part of responsibility of states as well as of individuals, by states I mean governments, um, to grapple with this. You know, in our society, obviously, we've largely regarded as the, it as the responsibility of philanthropy to assure that the cultural sector is alive and healthy. Um, that may be a challenged model, but I think, you know, the, the outcomes, the solutions, the pathways very much depend on, on what lies ahead in the political realm in this country. That sounds like both an optimistic and, and also <laughs> perplexing issue for us to tackle going forward. Uh, where can people learn more about Princeton University Art Museum, about some of the ongoing initiatives that uh, you guys are putting for us right now? 
So an obvious uh, answer would be to go to our website, um, sign up for our weekly newsletter that contains both breaking information about events that one can participate in. Um, we're currently offering a six month free membership program to encourage uh, people during a time of challenge um, to, to see our museum as a resource and as a per, perhaps a part of one's life. Um, uh, you know, the, the website captures um, uh, uh, a lot of information that we publish on a regular basis. Um, we produce a quarterly magazine that has, among other things, essay form writing, including by me, um, that are archived on the website so that well, you can see a little bit of of my ongoing kind of thinking about the issue of, of the responsibilities of of cultural institutions writ large. Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation, Director Stewart, both uh, not just on economic impacts of the coronavirus and also issues for our society at large and from art viewing experience to how museums can really step in to engage in some of the uh, important discussions in our social sphere. So thank you so much for joining My me. My pleasure. Today. If I can leave you with one thought, it is um, particularly for Princeton students, we are there, we are your museum. Um, we want this, the, these discussions, these topics you and I have been talking about a little bit to be an ongoing dialogue. Um, and so whether in the digital forum or as physical, you know, geographic normalcy hopefully returns, I hope you and others will reach out and be part of this discussion about what kind of museum we want uh, for, for Princeton. Well, thank you so much. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Visit uh, Princeton University Art Museum's uh, website to find out more about the ongoing amazing initiatives uh, led by Director Stewart and his staff. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Hope to see you next time.